Neo Before Blog presents Neo Before Pod. Welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that so far has yet to cross its own timeline. Though, if you've heard the Time Travel Podcast, then maybe we already have. Who knows? I'm your host, Craig, and we're here to do a primer for the Doctor Who 60th anniversary by talking about the 50th anniversary, which was almost 10 years ago now. That's crazy, as we record. Joining me for this is the most knowledgeable slash only Doctor Who fan I have on the team is Isaac. Hello. Hello. Nice to talk to you through this giant white time portal i'm going to throw in wav files through a bit more fun than sitting on the floor than i usually do what was it you called it a temporal fisher i think it's a temporal fisher it's a reference to i wrote this down in my notes there was one in the five doctors so that was the 20th anniversary special it's called the time eddie but yeah they, they renamed them time fishers so we're getting into it already is that spoilers there's a time portal in doctor who is that a spoiler well we're spoiling a 2013 episode we are. Yeah, God, so long. If you haven't watched it, pause, come back in 75-ish minutes. Otherwise, you won't know or care what we're talking about today. <laughs> Maybe 80-ish minutes, because we'll probably talk about the short that was released before it. There was actually two, but the other one's rubbish. Only one of them count. Yeah, the other one is really nothing. Weird found footage. Oh, yeah, of the time trenches. Okay, we've talked about that one, I guess. There's nothing more to say. But before we begin, even though this is a British production, I'm still going to reiterate that we are recording during the 2023 WGA and SAG after strikes. We as a podcast team are still committed to discussing and promoting all the things we're about to discuss because the best way to support those striking is to show those withholding fair payment for their work, how important that work is. Without them doing that work, we'd have nothing to talk about, essentially. Without the labour of the actors and writers currently on strike, None of what we're about to talk about would exist, and we support their desire to be recognised for the work they do. This isn't a WGA or SAG-AFTRA production because it's Doctor Who, however, it could get a bit dubious because we're moving into the Disney era of the show, but I think it will still be under UK union rules because it's been filmed here. It will, but I suppose any of the actors involved could have had trouble if working on an American production, so Matt Smith could have had a hard time on Morbius or something, so... It still all counts, and it's still good to show support anyway. Other than being in Morbius. Other than being in Morbius. David Tennant's in various American things. It's probably been an American film, yeah. As we record, he's a voice role in Ahsoka, so that's an American thing. That's true, the most tired robot in the Star Wars universe. Yes, and Jenna Coleman's in something that's on Amazon Prime that came out recently, Wilderness. Matt Smith is currently in... I think still House of the Dragon, isn't he? Is it House of the Dragon? I don't know if he's dead, though. He may he may have died in the first season. Yeah. He might be Reed Richards. We'll see. <laughs> he might be Reed Richards. Marvel will probably do what they usually do with actors that are rumoured to be Reed Richards and cast them in some other role. That's true. Because they did that with, what's his name from The Good Place? He just showed up in Quantumania as just some guy. Oh, I was thinking of Krasinski, but that's the wrong one. John Krasinski, yeah. Well, he did show up as Reed Richards, just not did, yeah. the main Reed Richards. <laughs> or maybe he will be. Who knows? 
Maybe. But anyway, Disney year of Doctor Who, we don't know. Neil Patrick Harris, he'll be under American Union rules. Yeah. Well, maybe not for the 60th, but he will be for various other things. Who knows? It's all legal stuff. I don't know how it works, and I'm not in a position to really comment on it. I'm just going to speculate wildly and get it all wrong. Yes, that's what we do. That sets us up quite nicely. Okay, so 60th anniversary of Doctor Who is coming up pretty soon. We've discussed it at length across various news podcasts and time travel, timey-wimey. You will be showing up on probably the next news podcast to discuss the trailer that isn't out yet, but has been announced. There's one coming. Everything's going to start ramping up, I imagine, next month. So, yeah, you'll hear more of me. Since we're recording this in September on the 19th of September to be precise, and the special airs, or the specials air in November, when we get to the speculation point of this discussion, we are bound to be wildly wrong, because they'll have revealed more information than we have access to in the following couple of months. Yeah, <laughs> it's been cancelled. The trailer's just like, not bothered actually, we're throwing the bin. <laughs> Something corrupted the footage and it's all gone. It's all deleted. Someone taped over it. History repeats itself. Chris Chimnall taped over it. <laughs> Chris Chimnall taped over it. <laughs> they plug it in and it's just Broadchurch or something. Just Broadchurch. It's not even in the offices anymore. He just popped in, left a scarf there or something, and brushed past keyboard and hit record on just a camera running with its lens cap on for three hours. Because <laughs> that's how these things work. That's how these things work. Listeners will know this already, but let's just reiterate it since it's a particular Doctor Who podcast. What's your connection to Doctor Who as a... I suppose we can call it a franchise, can't we? It's had more than one thing. Yeah, it's a franchise, I think. So yeah, I started watching it in 1999 when there was a... I think it was called Doctor Who Night on BBC One and they started showing some of the Tom Baker episodes afterwards. And I was eight and I got immediately hooked. And I, yeah, that's been my main dorky output since really i've not watched all of it because that's intense but i've always been watching i've kept up with all the new series and been reading their books and extended media and the big finish audio productions they do so i'm big into Doctor Who and hope to continue to be you got into that very expensive habit of listening to big finish audio uh, if i could go back to tell younger isaac when doctor who dvds are 20 pound a pop just don't worry about it just wait <laughs> Online piracy is coming in like two years. Don't spend about £600 that you need for your future life on just old 70s and 80s TV show, episode by episode. (laughs) BBC DVDs are a rip-off. They always have been. My experience of getting into Doctor Who was I started watching in the 2005 revival. I did see it here and there before. I think through osmosis, I knew about Tom Baker, Daleks, Cybermen, all those things. But broadly, my introduction to the show was in 2005. There were some things I already knew about, so whenever they would reference certain things, I'd be like, I know what that means. But on the whole, I was pretty new to it. And I think Russell T. Davies did an excellent job of reviving the property in a way that was accessible to new viewers. Give him his credit, that is not easy to do because you have this history that dates back to the 60s and you have eight previous actors playing this role and all this continuity to play with. And he still managed to come up with something that made it feel new and fresh and was very inclusive to new audiences. Rose as a character was very good with that. She was the one that could ask all the questions and have everything explained to her. I imagine for a lot of older fans of the show, they might have been a bit frustrated with that style, but it's the only way you could do it if you actually want people to watch it. Yeah, I think one of the genius things he did is... More than the old series, starting with Rose, he focused really heavily on the companion's life. Yeah. Everything is through Rose's eyes, so it's 
experiencing the TARDIS and monsters and stuff and the Doctor for the first time, as a lot of people are, because it's a brand new version. So even people who had watched it, like me, it's still cool to see, oh, this is way more detail of what it would be like if it's just aliens kicking around London and this incredible person with this time machine just shows up to save everything. So yeah, it was really nicely humanised down to the first companion really that we met their family and they had a boyfriend back in the old days it was tend to be oh they're just some person who has no connection to anyone on earth that just joins in whereas this is much more lived in yeah, it used to be these companions would just abandon their lives or families all that stuff and it would never be mentioned yeah no one as far as i can remember of the ones i've said none of the companions have husbands or wives or parents oh tegan had and aunt the episode introduces her starts with the master just killing her aunt so the one company that had a family member their family member is instantly killed and then they weren't bothered about it afterwards i think they were a bit upset for maybe like 10 minutes and they're like oh whatever <laughs> it's not the first doctor when he accidentally abducted the two teachers as well they kept wanting to get back to their lives and the tardis was just zipping about randomly was that not what was going on there yeah back when it was more of an educational show, or supposed to be educational, but it was like, this is the Romans. No, we're not going to go into detail. We're not reading about the Romans. Yeah, they were school teachers. And yeah, they were trying to get back to 60s London. And Doctor's not a very good driver. And it's like, oh, I think, no, this isn't it. <laughs> we're here having an adventure. Whoops. Yeah. So there's that. That's a problem. It still happens sometimes where he wants to go somewhere, or she and the TARDIS just takes them somewhere random. Yeah, so thinking about Rusty Davis here again, and that first series was almost exclusively set on Earth in London. On Earth, or things orbiting Earth. Yeah, around Earth, but not on any other planets. And I think the first doctor, other than his first episode, he went to London once to pick up the history teachers, and then maybe once again when they left, maybe like three years later. (laughs) So it must have been way more expensive to film. Yeah, maybe. Or... You're on flimsy sets and it's the BBC, so there's plenty of costumes lying around that you can replicate other eras. Yeah, apparently a lot of it was, say there was a, a Sherlock Holmes or something filming. Afterwards, somebody just knocked on the door. It's like, can we use this? <laughs> <laughs> we need a Victorian era place. And Studio 3's got it set up, so we'll just run in and film our lines and run out again. Yeah, it's fair. Something similar happened in the modern era when they did the Pompeii episode. They filmed on the TV show Rome's sets. Oh, yeah. There's a Matt Smith one as well. I can't remember which one. It might be the Venice one. And I think they use some Game of Thrones island. I think like there's a castle or something. And they're like, oh, Game of Thrones is filming an island. And they've got all these market stores and whatever set up. We'll just get on a plane and hop over to Ireland quickly, sneak in and just film some establishing shots and then run away again. Seems fair. Yeah. And the 50th anniversary then, it was a big deal. They made a big deal out of it. How was it you experienced it and what was your anticipation for the event like as well? At the time I worked at HMV, so I couldn't see it live. I really wanted to see it. It was in the cinema at the time. I'm being like pretty, oh my God, I'm going to see Doctor Who in the Daleks and stuff in the cinema. Crazy. I hope it's IMAX. It's never going to be IMAX, but yeah, it was very much, this is a big event. It's not just another episode on TV. You can pay to see it. Or you can watch it at home for free. Your choice. Yeah. And there was other show marketers did a docudrama called Adventure in Space and Time around the same time about the early years of Doctor Who. That started off being about Verity Lambert who created the show and then sort of pivoted to William Hartnell about halfway through. Yeah, his deteriorating health and stuff, that was really good. And Peter Davison made a spoof. That was after the special, wasn't it? Yeah. It was called The Five-ish Doctors. The Five-ish Doctors reboot, I think it was called. And that was, they were trying to break into the show because their characters weren't in the special. Yeah, they were picketing outside 
BBC Studios in London and John Barrowman says, you do know what films in Cardiff, right? And they're all like, oh, crap. And then yeah, they have to go. That's really fun. And they're phoning David Tennant to try and get on set. And it's when his wife is giving birth and keeps oh, saying yeah. things like, I'm sure I'm supposed to be somewhere at the moment. Yeah, so that was really good. So as well as the main show, there was other Doctor Who stuff sort of darted around. So yeah, like you said about franchise, it felt a bit bigger than it usually had. Yeah. You said you were working in HMV. Does that not shop before it would have started airing? It was near Christmas uh, and I worked in a shopping centre, so I think I didn't close till eight o'clock. Ah, uh, that's rubbish. And I missed it. So you're trying to stay off Twitter to not get spoilers? Yeah. I was like, run home and my mum was phoning me and I was like, no. <laughs> Did you try to phone twice? I was like, I'll phone you back. Don't talk to me until I've seen it. Wearing one of those sensory deprivation things in case you see something. Yeah. But again, it was not sort of... Trying to think if someone was to say a spoiler of the special. I suppose there is some stuff. We're not in spoilers yet. We're not in spoilers yet, but I was trying to think, like, compare it to, say, like a new Marvel movie where someone's just like, oh, this happens or whatever. Whereas in a spoiler-free thing, it was reported way before. It was the return of David Tennant alongside Matt Smith. But there's a couple of things in there that you wouldn't want to know until you saw it first time. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. There's elements and cameos, I suppose, that you don't want to spoil. My experience of it was I saw it in the cinema in 3D, so I saw the definitive version Ooh. It was a really good atmosphere. Everyone was well up for it. The 3D was actually really good because they had some 3D gimmickry in there. So it was the way it was designed to be shown. And they had a couple of skits that were on before it. You had, what's his name? The the Sontaran Strax, is oh, it? Oh, Strax, yeah. He was warning people against using their phones in the cinema and doing it with, a, if you're caught using your phone, I'll string you up and murder you and all that stuff. And... They did a putting it into 3D thing with the two doctors. Oh, I've seen that, yeah. Watch out for Matt Smith's chin and stuff like that. Yeah, it's the first Doctor Who shown in 11 dimensions. It's like, well, 10, we can't afford that one. <laughs> oh, that doesn't work. That one's not been invented yet. Okay, three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they did all that. It was a good buzz. There was people dressed up. I wasn't dressed up. I don't have any Doctor Who paraphernalia that I can wear, so I didn't. But I just went and enjoyed it. Although the funniest thing is... Leading up to the 50th anniversary was where I sort of got back into the show. So it was during Matt Smith's second series I stopped watching because I was finding it quite unbearable. It was after the pirate one I was thinking, I'm done with this, this is awful. And the silence as well, I wasn't keen on that episode. So I stopped watching it and then when it was leading up to the 50th, people were talking about it and I was like, oh, maybe I'll go back and give it a go. So I watched the rest of Matt Smith's series, series six it would have been, and I didn't enjoy it. I didn't think it was a very good series at all. And then I found aspects of Series 7 a bit better. I liked that it went back to a more episodic format and some of it actually made sense, which wasn't really happening prior to that. And then I was sort of back into it for the 50th. And then I think they did a really good job celebrating the show after 50 years. The Star Trek 50th anniversary was around about the same time. You know what Paramount did? Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. They put a cast photo in Star Trek Beyond that came out the same year. That was it. They did nothing to celebrate the franchise in any way. Hopefully they'll do something for the 60th, which will be pretty soon. And again, with the saga for strikes. <laughs> the 61st anniversary. They might still be going on in the next couple yeah. of years. <laughs> so it's, it's a shame for Star Trek there. But Doctor Who, I think the BBC gave it its due. Yeah. They did something, and they did something really exciting for a lot of people. Even doing that Paul McGann short, that's a great celebration. Yeah, that was really good. I've got a bunch of the Paul McGann, Night of the Doctor. It was a weird surprise as well, because it just dropped with no fanfare, didn't it? It just appeared one day. Yeah, it was on the... I don't think they still do it anymore. It's the BBC Red Button. <laughs> which I think was mostly for like Strictly Come Dancing after the show where people discussed 
how well people dance and stuff or stuff like that. Just extra features that nobody tuned into. I was like, okay, I'll watch a six minute Doctor Who short. And yeah, Paul McGann comes back. I remember actually being surprised by that because I watched it and then there he is. And I was thinking, oh my God, I did not see that coming. I don't think I was actively watching it as well. I think I was like, I'll put this on <laughs> on my laptop while I was I don't know, making breakfast or doing a different thing. I was like, oh, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> Rewind. <laughs> start that again. I think I didn't start again. I was like, hang yeah. on, it's actually a thing. <laughs> so what are your spoiler-free thoughts on the 50th special then, Day of the Doctor? I think it's very good. It's very fun. I think like you were saying about, was it Series 6 and 7, where Matt Smith's era got a little doom and gloom, a bit away from the sort of fairy tale style of 5 when he came in. And we knew he was regenerating relatively soon. I think it was at Christmas. So I was a bit of a worry. It's like, I hope it isn't all dark and moody and two doctors being kind of sad instead of one doctor being kind of sad. <laughs> but actually, it's really fun and there's excellent bickering between him and David Tennant. And then we have John Hurt's doctor as well, which is a new, fun, sort of grumpy granddad. And we didn't know at the time, kind of a pregenitor into the done a little better, in my opinion, by Peter Capaldi in his first series. That was more what I was expecting of a war doctor, but I still enjoyed how John Hurt did it as a more of a no nonsense gruff but still kind-hearted sort of person but yeah it's really fun excellent to see the zygons again one of the very first monsters i thought because i was a tom baker monster i remember getting that on video and that's just an excellent costume design it looked really cool so they were really fun to see it again this was only their second appearance wasn't it yes they'd only been in uh, how that made as well 1975 was Terror of the Zygons their first story and then here so they'd been a long time coming i imagine they've been in a million big finish things They've been in a million big finish things and books. They're one of the ones, what cultures or watch mojo, 10 monsters that have to come back. Like <laughs> usually in there. So yeah, it's just really fun. It's a really fun adventure. I really enjoyed it. They have to come back, even though they were in the 50th anniversary special and a two-parter during the Capaldi era as well. Yeah, we'll get into that in spoilers. <laughs> Something to say about that in a bit. I enjoyed the 50th special as well. I don't think it's flawless, but it was a lot of fun. It was a good celebration of Doctor Who. It was affectionately put together. It has some actual meaningful and enjoyable fan service. We talk about fan service on this podcast all the time where it's just meaningless garbage where it's put here because you recognise it. I don't think that's the case here. I think they did a really good job of making it count, making it important, which is unheard of now, if you think about it. Yeah, it's the certain times when fan service comes in, you're like, well, obviously, that's fine. We want that. I think there was a recent good example, Ahsoka where it does the spoilers for Ahsoka. Anakin Skywalker's come back, and it's all very fan service but it's also, it's the same as that. It's like, yeah, we want a bit. Oh, see, I thought that was awful. When you go to a big anniversary celebration, or in this case, they look back on the Clone Wars where this Ahsoka character originated from, fan service is there because people want to see live-action-y stuff, and also this is celebrating 50 years of Doctor Who, so you're going to have lots of mentions, and it's going to be a bit more celebratory and bigger and better, and there's more space for fan service in that special than there would be in, like, episode four of season something. Just a random episode that would feel a bit like, well, this is needless. There's something restrained about the way this was handled as well, because there's only one returning Doctor. It's only David Tennant that comes back, and he was the most recent one as well, prior to the current one. Yeah. You could easily see it. Yeah, we're going to chuck a six doctor story for the 50th anniversary or whatever, and it would just be this muddled mess. Yeah. But it's like, no, it's two recognizable doctors and one new one. And uh, pretty, it has to be said, low stakes story for most of it. The main plot, so to speak, there is kind of two plots that interweave, but the main plot is actually pretty simple. It doesn't 
occupy too much time. Yeah, it's a fairly standard Monster of the Week plot, which was not so much from Rusty Davis that I can remember, but I've not watched his for a while, but I was quite a Stephen Moffat-y thing. They'd have a few stories where like the Weeping Angels or the Daleks would show up, but the actual story is something else. They just need a monster to occasionally run from. And it's a bit like that with the Zygons. They're just kind of there to keep the momentum. Just something to return to every once in a while. Yeah, because it's a big family show and it's got to be exciting. I think it was a while later, Stephen Moffat was talking about the 50th anniversary and about how obviously some people will complain that not all the classic Doctors are returning. And he's like, well, William Hartnell wrote Return My Calls and apparently he died in the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> but we have David Bradley, who is essentially William Hartnell now. We have David Bradley, yeah, again, introduced in the Mark Gatiss show and then eventually took over as the first Doctor in a couple of episodes in the new series because he was very good. But yeah, it is difficult. I suppose the same with Star Trek as well. Obviously, the actors who played the characters have aged out, but you wouldn't want to recast them, especially when they're all still alive, because that feels a bit mean. Well, in Star Trek, they are quite happy to recast the iconic characters with Spock and Kirk and so on. Yeah, I suppose with those characters, say in the Picard series, Picard has aged because he can, whereas the 5th and 6th, 7th Doctors, we saw them from one end of their generation to the other, and they all were around 40 or so, and then if they turned up in their 80s, it requires a bit more explanation. Other than in the Centenary special, which we did a podcast on, where they were just old. They were old holograms. I think that's probably the best way of having them on screen. I can't think of another way you'd do it, other than if they phoned up or something. <laughs> Was there not the time crash, the children need special Pete Davidson? They did a weird, oh yeah, you're just older because of reasons. There's probably a line about destabilisation or something. It was something about because of the way the time streams, it's as if you've just aged without regenerating. It's as if you just aged along the number of years that it has been between us. Yeah, That kind of worked though, I think. I didn't see any of his run, I don't think, but... It seemed to work. He was in costume and still being doctory. So. Yeah, it was fine. Yeah, you can have like a throwaway line or so, but I think if, like, say, if you had Matt Smith and David Tennant who were in the time in there, I think Matt Smith was probably late 20s and David Tennant was probably like 40s maybe, and then Tom Baker would have been 80 roundish at the time. I think they're on the 60s and 70s, the other doctors. So it's a bit odd if just some old men showed up, <laughs> just a gang of old men. Yeah, David Tennant could step into his old role quite easily because it hadn't been that long. Yeah, but I think it would be a bit. Not jarring, but it'd just be a bit immersion-breaking every time if Tom Baker showed up in his scarf. And it's just clearly, we need to sit down and think of a way to defeat the Zygons <laughs> for 70 minutes. I need a seat because I'm an old man. Yeah, I was just having different sets. Comes strolling in with his walking stick, trying to yeah. pretend. But yeah, it's quite subdued in a way. And it's better for it, I think. Yeah, no, it's definitely better for it. Because again, that's probably getting into spoilers, but when we get into that, when they do do fanservice stuff, it's sudden and it's amazing. It's one of the best bits of the episode, but we'll get there. Should we reverse the polarity then and go into spoilers? Yeah, reverse the polarity of the spoiler flow. But let's not use our screwdrivers at the same time, because otherwise we'll confuse the polarity and then we won't be able to talk about spoilers. Well, speaking of fanservice, that's a good line. Let's wibbly wobbly our way into the spoiler zone. <laughs> Okay, let's start with the story. It's quite a simple one, as we talked about prior to spoilers. The main plot, I would say, for this is the Zygon story, as in it's the one that we follow for the longest time. The Time War thing, that's something that impinges on it, but it's mostly the Zygon thing. That's the immediate problem they're dealing with. Yes. And it starts off with the whole undergallery thing and the Zygons coming out of paintings because they've put themselves in paintings to wait until the Earth's more technologically advanced, all that stuff. 
Yeah. What do you think of the way that it was set up in order to starting off with the Matt Smith thing and then naturally flashing back to the David Tennant, Queen Elizabeth I adventure? I thought it was quite natural, actually, this idea of here's this adventure I once had and then it gives you an excuse to do a flashback, which then turns out to be actually something that you're going to interact with. But it starts off being like a flashback. Well, yeah, this is fun. It is, let's say, a flashback into his previous form. I think it was fun. I think, personally, this is the weakest plot element. Not the flashback stuff, but the Zygons being in paintings and things. It's not something you're supposed to spend too much time worrying about, is it? Yeah, if this was a regular episode and it's just like, oh, they've hidden in paintings so they can come back when the time is right or whatever. Similar to that, when we talk about the Peter Davison special, when he came back for comic relief, it's something that's kind of in a line of dialogue, but you zoom past it. Don't think about it. Look, the Zygons are showing up again. They're here. But almost immediately, we go and see the Gallifrey Falls or No More or Gallifrey Falls No More painting. And we get a little Zygon-y stuff, but then almost immediately, the main story, say, there's A plot, B plot, and C plot, I guess. That shifts. It's like, oh no, the real story is David Tennant and Matt Smith meeting. That's what this is for. Yeah, before the Zygon thing even comes in, we get the Time War flashback, which has John Hurt's doctor introduced. He runs over a couple of Daleks with a TARDIS. He takes the moment, as it's called, the weapon of mass destruction, to that cabin that keeps showing up. So this is the first time the cabin shows up. Yeah, it appears another twice, doesn't it? It's in Listen, and then it's in the Peter Capaldi second series finale after he escapes the castle thing. Oh yeah, the confession dial. Yeah. It's just some shed somewhere. I think it's one of these things which happens in loads of science fiction, where it gained significance later, but at the time it's just, it's going to film this in like a little shed. Plus it, it can't really be the same shed because in this episode, it's in the middle of the desert on some planet that's not Gallifrey, whereas later on it's outside his house or something. Yeah, it's like, it's like the garden shed, I think. <laughs> it was cool to see the Time War finally, because we've heard it referred to so often, although I actually found this depiction of the Time War quite boring compared to the descriptions we've received, because it's just a bunch of Daleks shooting at them. I remember thinking my biggest regret about not seeing this in the cinema is that opening shot where you just have dust-covered Daleks and children running away and like this ash-fallen laser thing. It's like, this is incredibly cinematic. <laughs> if I want to go see Daleks on the big screen, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast a couple of times, but I have three villains that I'm happy to show up every week forever, even though they're overused, which is the Daleks, the Joker, and Darth Vader. <laughs> Those three always, I'm like, oh, good. They're great. They're fun. And just to have gone to the cinema and watched squadrons of Daleks screaming exterminate on cinema surround sound would have been the highlight of that year. It was pretty cool. I didn't think about the disappointment of this is all the time war is depicted as at the time because the spectacle did overwhelm that. It was more a later thing. But when you think back to the descriptions that Russell T. Davies wrote about the time war, it was the things like the Nightmare Child or the armies of oh, never wears yeah. and always wasies and whatever. There was lots of quite poetic language associated with various things. I suppose it's the problem of a high concept war. I'm sure there's another story where they mention that because it's a time war, and there's some planets or some parts of the universe where it's always has happened and it always will happen. Even though it's ended, it's still going on somewhere forever. And it always has been way before even both races exist and stuff. There's all that sort of stuff. They talk about being time-locked, don't they? Which means yeah. they can't get into the events. Yeah, just whole portions of it are essentially snipped off and just put into their own little bubbles. It's not an incredibly visual war. No. It's one of those things that captures the imagination when you hear them talk about it. The yeah. Nightmare Child, for example, I imagine some kind of big Cthulhu-esque 
creature or something like that. But apparently it's just some kind of super Dalek that I learned out more recently. Huh. There's concept art of it or whatever. It's just some kind of souped up Dalek. So that's kind of boring. Yeah, that's kind of boring. I imagine it's this sort of typical horror thing of just a baby's face in some black ink or something. Yeah, some kind of Lovecraftian nightmare. Yeah, it does some nightmare. I can't remember the actual wording, but the armies of Neverwares and all that thing. Yeah. I get this is the last days of the Time War, so the, the Time Lords and the Daleks are the last two standing, I guess. Yeah. So all that stuff has been and gone, and all that stuff is destroyed, and it's down to the slaughter, really. The Daleks are going to win. Yeah, it's just the last few Time Lords left in, in the war council that are holding on as long as they can. And all the kids running about on the streets. Yeah. So there's all that. And then the war doctor, I remember I had my head psyched up for this. It's going to be this more brutal, battle-hardened doctor. And he's really just kind of a nice old man who draws on walls. Yeah, that's what I was saying earlier about early Peter Capaldi. In his first series, he's more like he has to look at things as a series of numbers. It's like, well, this many people die, but this many people saved. And it's kind of the bigger picture of the universal scope than just having to make sure that everyone immediately around him is okay. And I kind of imagine more of a general, this may cost this planet, but it saves future invasions of... It's that sort of mentality where you can't count every life because... This is a bigger scale than just what's immediately around me kind of attitude that he originally had. There's one example of that that always stuck out to me, and it was in Capaldi's first series. Into the Dalek, there's a bit where there's a guy who's about to die, and the Doctor says, well, I can't save you. You're dead right now. It's just you haven't been killed yet, so I want you to spend your last minute telling me everything that you see so that I know what to do next. And then it happens again on Mummy in the Orient Express as well. Yeah, it's like you've got 66 seconds to... Tell me as much as you can before you're no longer useful, basically. Yeah, but the crucial thing about it is he just doesn't care that this person's about to die. Yeah, because he's got a bigger thing to do. It's like, you're dead, basically, but you're my best source of information to stop other people dying. And to be fair, I think the trailers oversold the War Doctor as well because they picked the lines that you could interpret as John Hurt being this arrogant warrior that just hates the future doctors because they're not strong soldiers like he is. There was that line about it's the job of lesser men to light the flame or whatever the line is. And you can assume that he considers himself to be the great man and they're the lesser men kind of thing, but it's the other way around in the actual episode itself. Yeah, especially as we see it in this episode as well. It's common for doctors not really to like their past selves none of them get on and he's probably the most amicable to his other selves it's like well these are okay whereas david Tennant and matt smith are calling each other names and making jokes about being skinny or having different shoes or whatever it's like when you think back to yourself as a teenager yeah and you're like oh god i can't believe how embarrassing i was (laughs) this is the worst it's the same sort of thing you're embarrassed by things you did in your youth and the doctor is an extended metaphor for that because they're always thinking about past lives literally their previous lives when they were different people yeah one of the things i was expecting with the war doctor because matt smith says he doesn't admit to all of his lives and likes to pretend that the john hart incarnation never existed david Tennant's the same and i thought it was because he did some nasty stuff during the war but they're only bothered about the fact that he pushed the button they're not bothered about anything else. What about all those people you murdered during the war? I mean, it's possibly unmentioned. He might have, say, in the stuff with a nightmare child and the armies of Never or whatever, there could have been a lot of other atrocities that he's done. Yeah, but 
they don't seem to be bothered about those. Just the button pushing. The main element is, yeah, it's blowing Gallifrey up. Yeah, again, there's another thing, because the Time Lords are usually the baddies. Or they're usually shown as the ultimate corruption, because they have total control. It was the end of time, the David Tennant one, where we see the Time Lords at their Time War self, where... I was going to say Timothy Chalamet, Timothy Dalton. Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> Timothy Dalton is the ultimate corrupt Time Lord, who's just like, we need a new Gallifrey, Earth is... We're taking this sort of thing. Yeah, they were going to ascend to some non-corporeal plane of existence or whatever. Yeah, and just wipe out all time and be like, yeah, done with it. It's our right as snooty Tories, effectively. Yeah, I mean, that's what they were in the old days. It's the writers going like, oh, the government are yelling at us for having this in, so we're going to make some fuddy-duddy pencil pusher characters that are always bothered about order and rules and stuff. So yes, having David Tennant's Doctor, in his next episode, he's about to go and fight those Time Lords. And in this one, being like, oh, you blew them all up. It's a little odd. Well, that's one thing that's on this agenda, is the pivoting of the perspective of Gallifrey, because in the end of time, the Doctor talks about how he wiped out the Time Lords because they were as bad as the Daleks, as far as he was concerned. They had crossed the line and needed to go. Yeah. It was a tough decision for him, but it was the one that he felt like he had to make. And remembering his people as being these radiant saints that deserve respect and stuff like that, he says that's the way he chooses to remember them. And that's a common thing when you're grieving. You think about all the positive things of the person that you've lost. You don't necessarily think about the times that you disagreed with them or the times that you might have had a major issue with them, those kinds of things. You remember them in this idealised space and that's what helps you move on because you can think fondly about them. So that's what the doctor was doing. That's how he was processing his grief. And then when he was faced with the prospect of them coming back, he had to think about them as this horrible threat that he'd get rid of again. And that's how he resolves it. But they pivot it in this one by focusing on the fact that innocent children were killed when I did this. So he decided that in order to take the awful aspects of the Time Lords out, he also had to get rid of the children. There was no way to be selective. It's an all or nothing deal. He doesn't get to choose which ones survive. And it's a horrible decision, obviously, that he makes. But the fact that they reference that, how many children, and David Tennant's Doctor remembers, Matt Smith doesn't, and the War Doctor wonders how many children it will be. Yeah, because he hasn't counted yet. Yeah, one day he'll sit and count. Probably as Christopher Eccleston. Yeah, that's kind of his penance. Obviously the penance has gone through with that's just going, I don't know how he got a Gallifrey in yellow pages. <laughs> the children's section, like, okay, one, two. I suppose it's kind of similar whenever the Doctor and the Masters meet. There'll always be a scene where they're like, oh, remember on our academy days when we were rebellious people just messing around? And even though the Master is a genocidal maniac, the Doctor still fondly remembers, oh, this is the friend I used to have. Hmm. So it's a similar sort of attitude we've seen before. The sort of ever hopeful, maybe one day they can get their friend back. Same with the Time Lords. Well, the Doctor persistently tries to forgive the Master and reform the Master when Capaldi's Doctor, for example, wanted to turn Missy into a new Doctor. And you had the comedic thing of her trying to pretend to be him. I'm the Doctor. This is my companion. I don't care about them. What's going on here? Well, Capaldi's observing from inside the TARDIS. Yeah. Comedic. We'll go with... And we're like, uh, yeah. at the time. Yeah, it's a bit strange. But I found that pivoting quite interesting. And it does highlight the differences in overall tone between the Russell T. Davies and Stephen Moffat eras. Because Moffat was broadly more optimistic than Russell T. Davies is. A lot of Davies' writing is a bit fatalist. It is a bit, yeah. It's not so much the character, because the Doctor's always, even Chris Jackson, becomes more optimistic through his run. I think Russell Davis is a bit more happy to throw people really into the deep end of giving them the worst time. 
than Stephen Moffat is. But I think when you look at Russell T. Davies as a writer and the other stuff he does, as a gay writer as well, he throws a lot of harsh realities. That's exactly it. There's a harshness to his writing that affects how the stories play out. So, for example, the Time Lords being this existential threat, that's a harsh interpretation. But Stephen Moffat comes in and thinks, well, there's nuance to that, even if that thing was going to happen. And they quickly reference what the council are up to, don't they? Because you have the, what are they called? The War Council. Yeah, there's a general, that guy. <laughs> the main one. The general, the leader of troops. One of yeah. the, supposedly the quote-unquote bottom rung of Time Lord society. And then you have the Time Lord that Rassilon is in charge yeah. of. You kind of get the sense that it's like historically there's always politicians that'll have some general advisors who are just eager to start pulling the trigger. And now it's like, okay, these guys have started getting their time to shine now. We're letting these guys run the show for a bit. And they're just like, okay, weapons, destruction, this sort of stuff. Their society has now gone from non-intervention to like, okay, these guys are doing it now. And that's where you get like the general and the chiefs. And it's all much more militarized and flexing their power than what they usually do. Yeah. And you have the difference between the two styles of writing and the two doctors as well. And it works because Stephen Moffat also wrote for Tennant, so he understands what Davies was looking for. So he can write an authentic version of Tennant. The difference would be if you got some other showrunner, Shibnall also wrote for Tennant as the doctor, but maybe not as well. But if you got the next showrunner to write the 10th doctor, and they'd never worked on the show before, they might struggle a bit because... They weren't around. But the interesting thing I found on this watch was you have Tennant's doctor is still suffering from the PTSD of the decision that was made. Yeah. And he is disgusted at the fact that Matt Smith's doctor would forget how many children there were and would move on from this event. Because as far as he's concerned, you can never move on from this. This is horrible. It's all consuming. And it's it's a very common thing again when you're dealing with stuff like that is that you might feel like there's no way out or you feel you'll never forgive yourself you'll never let yourself move on you'll never let yourself heal and even though the russell t davies era of doctor who was almost the study of a man who was trying to heal i don't think he ever fully got there but the matt smith doctor embraces a bit more of a childlike fairy tale persona yeah and that's how he manages to move on from that that's how he manages to function yeah. So it's, again, it's interesting. It's the, the pessimism of the David Tennant, Russell T. Davies era of PTSD and damage and pain versus the Stephen Moffat, more optimistic, playful era. Yeah, it pivots back, doesn't it? Because when Peter Capaldi comes in, that's an excellent example of dealing with grief in heaven's end when he's in the confession dial and it's like, it's like, you know, it's not the day that they die. You've got something to do. It's all the days afterwards. So this is beyond my pay grade psychologically. About uh, how different people suffer with grief and deal with grievances and tragedy. There's a stage where the Tenth Doctor is still feeling guilty for what they've done and cannot comprehend that. Does the Tenth Doctor know that Matt Smith is the next one? Did he mention that? Or does he just like, oh, a future version of me? I don't think I've ever explicitly stated that he knows that it's the next one. It's just in 400 years, isn't it? 400 years, that's all it takes to forget. Yeah. So yeah, it's self-disgust at someone, going like, oh, this is where I'm heading. You mean you'll find a way to be happy again? I don't like that. I don't want to forgive myself. I can't forgive myself. Yeah. Yeah. They still don't think they've earned self-forgiveness yet. Yeah. And regardless of whether it's above any of our pay grades in terms of psychology, in terms of therapy and things like that, it's consistent. It's character consistency. And that is something that is really appreciated. Aaron talks a lot about, in particular, when it comes to Marvel 
films is that directors come in, writers come in, and it's not expected that they need to read or watch the thing that came before, even if they're doing a direct sequel to it. He often brings up Multiverse of Madness about how Sam Raimi and the writer of that film didn't even watch Doctor Strange or any of the Avengers movies he was in, stuff like that, and therefore creates a different character that doesn't reference anything that came before. And yeah, I do think there's some truth to that, but Stephen Moffat does respect Russell T. Davies' era of Doctor Who and weaves it into his interpretation of the David Tennant Doctor. But again, he worked on the show at the time, so he knew what was kicking about. He did one story every season, pretty much, didn't he? Yes, he did. It was a series regular. Yeah, he only did the one story every season, but he would know Russell T. Davies was planning. He would know where it was going, stuff like that. And then I imagine there was... Some liaising went on before Moffat took the reins of the franchise as well. So there's respect there, and I like that. I like the fact that the David Tennant Doctor feels authentically the David Tennant Doctor. Yeah, and I don't think it's a difficult character to write, because obviously you have a ton of history, like different versions of the character, and it's just making them distinct that really is the challenge of when you bring in a new one. What makes this one different to all the other ones sort of stuff? And of course, David Tennant, it'd been three years since he'd been off it, so you could kind of just step back into it pretty breezily without having to watch over his old stuff and that. What ticks and mannerisms had automatically put in. It's still all there. That'd be a performance thing for David Tennant, yeah. But it's just more from a writing point of view, the fact that Stephen Moffat wove in the differences between the two. Because it would have been so easy to just ignore that and then it would have been a bit more of a flat experience as a result, but it really works. And it was interesting to just see the different perspectives on where they are in their character journeys through the grief, especially when the pressing the button decision is a major part of this plot. It's something that you need to get right in order for it to function. That's true. Of course, this is David Tennant post-Time Lord Victorious. Yeah, it's fresh off that. But that only lasted five minutes, didn't it? He kind of got over it very quickly. (laughs) That would have been a really grim version of the Doctor to write this arrogant, I'm the king of the universe type Doctor. I forgot about the Time Lord Victorious. That was weird. It's because it only exists for a minute or so. Exists for a minute. And then the woman shoots herself in the head and then he's like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I'd say Stephen Moffat saying that comes again to in Peter Capaldi's era when it's like your reign of terror will end the first time someone gets hurt. That's kind of how the time of Victorious will always go. It's like, I'm going to be this and then someone will be sad and be like, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh never mind. Until he becomes the Veilyard, which will happen at some point, I guess. Uh, at some point. It is mentioned. It's mentioned in... Name of the Doctor. It is mentioned, yeah, just in the episode before, yeah. Yeah, Richard E. Grant refers to on the names he'll be known by. Yeah, that's too much to get into that character. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of those problems where it was a real Tomorrow's Me's problem, but in 1986, <laughs> and now Tomorrow's up there and it's like, oh, we don't want to deal with this. No one remembered. <laughs> no one liked that story anyway, because that was something around when the show was getting cancelled. It's the same with the half-human thing from Paul Bagan's time. It's two ones, it's like, we'll have to explain that one day, but the next person can sort that one out. And then Moffat's thinking, let's get rid of the regeneration limit in my final story. Let's reset so we can have infinite regenerations. And then Shibnall comes along and thinks, well, the Doctor's the original Time Lord, so infinite regenerations. It's nice. It's in whichever Sarah Jane Adventures episode featuring Matt Smith. Someone asks him, oh, how many faces can you have? And he says, 507. <laughs> and that was Rusty Davis' attempt to be like, to say any number, it doesn't matter. No one's paying attention. Well, people were paying attention. Oh, people were paying attention. And that's why the regeneration episode's so muddled. We need to extend this so that this is the 13th Doctor. 
It's like when the 100th podcast was coming up and I kept having to delay it. I kept thinking, this episode doesn't count because we weren't ready to record anything. So it was, yeah. yeah, we'll just combine these into one and uh, cut the interviews. That gives us another 12 episodes. Numbers. Who cares? Yeah, I kind of love it. If all these people complaining, it's like, oh, but what about the Doctor numbering? The show doesn't turn around. like, oh, the show's cancelled then. You win. <laughs> That's it. We're going to film the character dying and the funeral's there and then the show's gone forever. You've won. You've killed that character. You like that's what you wanted. Now your numbering makes sense. The show doesn't exist anymore. Congratulations. Well done. Well done. Slow clapping. Good for you. There was actually one thing that annoyed me about this special the first time I saw it. Speaking of the previous episode, because that episode ended with the Doctor jumping into his own time stream to get Clara. Yeah, that is fine. Yeah, it's resolved off screen and it's never mentioned again. There is one mention of Clara having met the John Hurt Doctor before in this episode, but that's it. Yeah, she saw him in the swirly stuff. Yeah, but all of that, the Impossible Girl story, that hasn't been resolved, still hasn't been resolved. The Doctor stuck in his own time stream thing also hasn't been resolved. How did they get out? How did they get out? Did they get out? (laughs) It is still happening. That was a problem with Moffat. He would set things up and just never resolve them. Yeah, I think that continued to Sherlock as well, if I remember. Second like in Simpsons, whenever anything like that happens like that, a wizard did it. <laughs> and it was in his final story as well, the regeneration episode, where Matt Smith brings up, someone blew up my TARDIS a while ago, and Orla Brady's like, yeah, that was us. Oh, yeah. Okay. I remember that. <laughs> Great. Great. So glad we waited four years for that answer. Fantastic. But anyway, it's neither here nor there. It's just one of those weird things that's just sitting there completely unresolved. It will never be resolved now. Yeah. And it's the same with the whole Trenzalore thing. How does it not become as too many more? Big Finish will eventually get around to it. <laughs> that tends to be the thing with Doc Taylor. If you're wondering why, just give Big Finish like five years and they'll release a box set. And they'll have Jackie Tyler in it and she'll solve it. <laughs> or whoever's available. When Jenna Coleman's not doing prestige shows on Amazon Prime, they'll get her to do the Impossible Girl box set and... It'll be all those stories of her saving the Doctor. Yeah, and I'll just have cameos from some 80-year-old who was in Unit once. (laughs) (laughs) I do really enjoy Big Finish, but the very commonly made joke about that thingy is it's a dartboard with pictures of different people. And it's like, okay, the Fifth Doctor meets this character from 1964 and the Scovox Blitzer and this. (laughs) And go. Can we get the actors? No. Can we get someone that sounds enough like the actor? Yes. Yes, sure. Close enough. Oh, they've got a cold or something. (laughs) (laughs) That's something. But yeah, the War Doctor, despite the fact that he's not this hardened warrior, I really liked him. If you can get John Hurt, get John Hurt, because he's just excellent. And having him as a bona fide doctor as well, one of the recognised numbers. Well, he kind of is and kind of isn't. He's technically the ninth doctor, isn't he? Technically, and technically Matt Smith's the 13th. And David Tennant is 11 and 12. He's 11 and 12 and he's going to be 16, I think. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Well, you've got... If Matt Smith was the 13th, then Capaldi 14. Oh no, we're 15. Sasha Dewan then became the Doctor. Then he went back to Jodie Whittaker and then she died. He's not the 20th, isn't it? <laughs> There's a load of them. Don't worry about it. And then you have to wonder how many Doctors there were before or in between around the Joe Martin era type stuff. Yeah. Could be hundreds of them. Or just in the 90s. <laughs> Since the Doctor was found. Yeah. Let's not get into the timeless child story, but how many regenerations was there there before Tech to You and discovered how to replicate it? Yeah. You can count the actors, but don't worry about the actual character. It's just the same character. It's just different faces. 
Matt Smith's the 250th Doctor or something like that. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> it doesn't matter. But anyway, but John Hurt was good. The original concept that Moffat wanted to do was bringing back Christopher Eccleston's Doctor. And there's various stories, not sure which one of them is true, around why he didn't return. One is that he wanted a director that he liked or needed his series to direct it. Moffat didn't know who the guy was, so he said no to that. Another was that Eccleston didn't like the script because it was just the three of them bickering. I think the most likely one. So apparently they went for lunch and he questioned it and he was like, no, no, thank you. Thanks for lunch, but no thanks. There's a fair few stories where it's like, oh, maybe it could have worked if this had happened in this. But I think the most accurate, especially you've heard Chris Chuckleson in various interviews on other things and how he approaches other projects. And a lot of them, it's just sort of like, either like, yeah, all right, or nah. And I think it's probably just one of those. He's like, thanks, but no thanks. Sorry, I'm looking for the next blockbuster I can be in that will fail. Yeah, he has said recently, because he's doing Big Finish now, is he doesn't want to do any stories with any other companions because he's like, in the story of my one, he meets Billy Piper's Rose and, and that kind of heals him. So he can't have that before. He can't heal prior to that. And also he doesn't want to do multi-doctor stories because like, I want top billing basically. So there is possibility that some of it is he had terms that didn't work with the script or this stuff. But I mean, ultimately we got John Hurt as well and that was quite fun. And it worked with Stephen Moffat's future plan. Well, what became Stephen Moffat's future plans of the Christmas special and needing a fair few faces to have gone through to do the regeneration limit and stuff. So... I couldn't imagine this story with Christopher Eccleston in it, though, because I keep saying this, maybe not on a podcast, but I keep saying it, that in the episode Rose, it's pretty clear that he's just regenerated because he does that whole checking himself out thing. Yeah, look at his face thing. It's like the ears could be worse or whatever. He says a couple of things that indicate that he's never really had the chance to take stock of himself. So it suggests that he's just regenerated. And then obviously in the Rose episode, you have that subplot where that guy has collected all the images of the Doctor throughout time. And my headcanon of that is when he disappears at the end of the episode in the TARDIS and returns a second later and says, did I tell you it also travels in time? My headcanon is that he went and had a bunch of adventures in that second and then came back. I think that is what Big Finish are going for in that gap. But also there was a joke that when he looked in the mirror in Rose, he just had a haircut. It's an audio. He could have had a mohawk or something, or a, I don't know, big afro. And he's gone like, oh, that's all right. He did an okay <laughs> job with this. Okay, when well, well, we fight in the autons, <laughs> just carrying on again. I always imagined that Paul McGann's doctor would have been the war doctor, though. Yeah, I know they didn't want to use Paul McGann, because that doctor is very much the romantic English gentleman, because it was the movie he was in is an American movie, and it's very 90s, and it's kind of like, ooh, this dashing English hero kind of thing. And Stephen Moffat said, oh, I can't personally see this character being in a war, doing these things. But then, as we were discussing... That's what war does. Yeah, that war changes people, so that could have been a thing. And, well, we know Pomegan's very much up for it because he's recording audio stories with Big Finish, so it's not like he's loath to return or anything. He probably would have done it. Hang on, you want to give me a lot of money to reprise my role in live action? Also, I've just done that, and the Night of the Doctor special, so has got my costume made and everything, I can come back. He proved that he could have done it. He proved that he would have been able to hold a candle to the other two in that short... Yeah, in about four minutes that he's on screen, he steals the show and he's incredibly doctory and stuff. But what could have been? But... If you can get John Hart, then get John Hart. Interestingly, though I suspect it may be a lie, Paul McGann recently said that Russell T. Davis wanted Paul McGann as the Doctor for this, the 14th Doctor. Really? As that old face. But either people in BBC or something wanted a more well-known Doctor with the new series audiences. But that's rumour for now. Well, if you want to get 
the audience back into the show, you bring back the most popular actor. Yeah, and that also doesn't work because then obviously we're getting the return of Catherine Tate and that sort of stuff. So that wouldn't work if she wasn't meeting the doctor she travelled with. So it's not an amazing rumour. I'd be surprised if that was true. I imagine that it was always the plan to... We need to reinvigorate the show. Let's get David Tennant back. Yeah. I think just also, it's sort of the Rusty Davis coming back with a bang thing. This is where basically I left the show. <laughs> I left it here in 2008. We're going to revisit that for a bit, but that's for later. That's 10 years from now. <laughs> yeah. But the War Doctor, the weapon ends up speaking to him because it's mm-hmm. sentient and it takes the form of Rose or the Bad Wolf because we're still bringing that up, even though it still makes zero sense. I remember feeling quite smug about this. <laughs> not that I had anyone to tell, tell anyone about it, but in the trailers and stuff, Billy Piper, she's clearly not Rose. Yeah. Because she's dressed in rags and wizard garb and whatever. There was an early rumour that this was going to pick up during Tennant's first series, wasn't it? Yeah. His portion was going to be set during that time. Once we got the trailer and pictures and stuff, and she's clearly not in mid noughties gear and with David Tennant in any of the scenes. Not dressed in chavs chic. Yeah, not in Chow Chic. I was like, I think something's going on with this. I don't think she's playing Rose. I think she's probably playing another character or something. So I remember being really smoking. It's like, I got it. I guessed it right. <laughs> and I think that was the right touch as well, because you have this face from his past or future. The moment doesn't know which is which. Yeah. You hand wave it away by saying that John Hurt and the other doctors forget about these events completely. So as far as they're concerned, they still press the button. We can talk about whether that's undermining or not at a later point. But that's a good piece of fan service, isn't it? You get Billy Piper in playing a different role. And it shows her range as well. I never really liked Rose as a character that much. I think Billy Piper is fine in the role, but I don't think the character was all that interesting. So having Billy Piper in to show what she can really do as an actor was good. And the fact that she only interacts with John Hurt was an interesting choice. Yeah. You have the bit where Tennant acknowledges the Bad Wolf reference, but that's it. Well, that's it, because the character is there just for exposition. She's just like, this is how the weapon works. So it's like, how do you make that interesting? Oh, you bring out one of the most famous companions and get it that way. But you don't deliver the fan service of her speaking with David Tennant. That's also a nice touch, I think. There's already a lot going on in this, so you like to sort of tingle that they could. Maybe at the end she might flicker in and he'll spot her again or something and recognise her face, but it's a nice way of doing a, a bit of fan service without it. Again, becoming its own separate plot and taking over the whole story. Yeah, she keeps the plot moving. She presents information that needs to be presented to John Hart. She allows him to interact with the other two, stuff like that. She's a catalyst. Yeah, she's just there to keep everyone up to date with what the plot is, basically. She is incorrectly credited as Rose, though, for the credit. I think that was probably so that, you know, when Radio Times or whatever comes out and it's like Lee Piper and then, I suppose, in the end credits. Yeah, it's in the actual credits of the episode. <laughs> okay. Just a mistake, I guess. Probably, yeah. Just like when Christopher Eccleston was credited as Doctor Who for his entire series. He was, yeah. <laughs> this marks the first time that he was ever credited as the Doctor, apparently, even though he's not in it. Oh yeah, because at the end they credit everyone, which is nice. Because they're all in it, but you didn't film any new footage. No, they just had a... If we go to fan service and talk about the big moment, at the end, all 13, all the Doctors show up in clips to join in. I like the twofold setup of that. You had the stasis cubes where... Like Time Lord art, it's bigger on the inside. It can be 3D because that's fun. And then you had the setup of putting a calculation in the sonic screwdriver so that 
it would work its way through the incarnation. So if John Hurt starts it, it's finished by the time Matt Smith's time. Yeah, then. that was a lovely little trick with, you've got these characters that have existed over hundreds of years and they're all the same one. It was a clever bit of fun with the mechanic. The screwdriver was a metaphor for the Doctor as well. The same software, different face. Yeah. So they're the same person, but the outer shell is different. That was good. John Hurt's screwdriver, is that a prop that was used on one of the old Doctors or was it just similar looking to an old screwdriver yeah checked it's designed to look like tom baker's one it's just a replica or most likely a toy of the prop they had but yeah it's designed to be the one in the classic series the screwdriver i think john perty was the first one to have it and tom baker used it extensively like every story featured it and then when peter davison took over the production team didn't like the screwdriver so it's blown up and time crash david tennant says that he was hands-free he's gone hands-free yeah because this is too easy for him to just do a thing and get rid of it so yeah it was a 70s gizmo that they're then reusing for this one. Okay. And in some ways, John Hurt is an old era doctor interacting with the new era as well. Yeah, it's not as sort of dynamic in terms of the two, but it's sort of more about thinking it out than having to run around everywhere. If Stephen Moffat was writing a classic doctor, that's kind of how he'd do it. You mean until later when he did actually write a classic doctor? True. <laughs> when he just made him sexist and racist. If he was trying to get the style of what the doctors used to be like kind of thing. We like they were kind of like this. They were a bit more gentle and yeah. I love how exasperated he is with his future selves. These young men that are just talking nonsense. Yeah, obviously, when the Sonic came into the new series, it was quite a dynamic thing to pose. Whereas in the old one, Tom Baker could just be like, it's not a visually impressive thing because he's just sort of like, yeah, that does this. And so it's kind of poking fun at how Doctor Who's become more actiony and it's like a gun, isn't it? The way that the Doctor wields it. Yeah. And John Hart makes fun of that. It's like, it's a screwdriver. What are you going to do? Assemble a cabinet at them? So yeah, that's a bit of fun of just sort of, this is how the modern doctors are more posing a dynamic and drama-y compared to like the previous ones who just waddled around a bit. You see that when they're doing the activating the memory loss device thing, Tennant and Smith, they're dramatically pointing the screwdriver and John Hart just sort of lifts it. Yeah, he's just like, yeah. I did love from the direction point that there's lots of points where David Tennant and... Matt Smith's Doctor sync up because even if they're different personalities, they sort of sit and the little glasses, like, oh, lovely hell. Little bits where there's some universally doctorish things. Well, it's the thing where they move together and they finish each other's sentences. Yeah, it's the same brain thinking. And John Hurt, he does sometimes chime in and maybe throw in a comment that completes a sentence, but on the whole, he's separated from them. But I think it's the idea that the Matt Smith and David Tennant doctors are actually fairly similar in a lot of ways. Yeah. And obviously they're right next to each other in terms of the canon, so it sort of makes sense that they'd be acting as one because they approach things in a similar way in a lot of cases. They do, but I'd say if this was a it's an 11th and 9th Doctor or 10th and 12th, where they're much more jarring personalities, I can still imagine that is the same. They'd still have the same swagger and have the same speed of thought processing. So even though David Tennant and Matt Smith's Doctors are very similar in terms of the overall vibe. I think even if you took more of the conflicting personalities, that still would be how you kind of write it. You know, even if it was, I don't know, Peter Capaldi and David Tennant, their doctors are wildly different, but you could still do that same style of, it's still a doctory thing. I couldn't imagine Tennant and Capaldi together when they sit down and put their feet up on the table at the same time, that kind of stuff. Oh, that's, that's what I was imagining. Oh, okay. The doctory swagger. <laughs> I'm guessing on set, they just had the dialogue on the page and it was up to the actors to just figure out, I'll say this line, you say this line, we'll see how it works. Yeah, imagine in rehearsal, they've just like, just cut in. <laughs> 
But yes, the climax, I suppose, or part of the climax is the saving Gallifrey thing. And a plan that really doesn't make that much sense when you think about it. <laughs> it's the idea of, we'll hide Gallifrey and then the Daleks will just shoot each other and all blow up. And none of them will miss. It's like they did it in either the Daleks. There's two Daleks coming at you from either angle. If you duck, they'll both shoot each other. <laughs> Maybe it explains how that Dalek Emperor managed to survive. Because the moment was never used. Yeah, it must be. I think of it backwards. Oh, I forgot to mention when we were talking about the scene with Matt Smith and David Tennant in the Black Archive. I was convinced this was the big speech one, but there's just been two Zygon stories with Clara and Unit both having their climaxes in the same room. <laughs> Capaldi gives a speech, doesn't he? And I was like, oh, that's the other one of these. In my head, I was sure there was a speech and that was what Matt Smith and David Tennant were jumping around when they're saying the when you fire the first shot stuff. I thought that's coming up. But I was like, oh no, that's a different one. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, that's so weird that the modern Zygon stories both have the same setting and ending and all the characters like Unit and Clara are all there. That's a weird coincidence. <laughs> I quite liked it how it was, we're just going to erase your memories of who you actually are and then you'll be forced to talk to each other impartially. And we're not going to sit and wait and see how that goes. We're just going to leave you to it. Yeah, it'll work out fine. <laughs> I'm going to go and change the history in a massive way instead. See you later. Yeah, jumping back to what we were saying about, I've forgotten the name of them, the little painting cubes, the stasis cubes. Stasis cubes. Cup of soup, they refer it to. You add time. Oh yeah, just add time. What is cup of soup, says John Hart. That's weird that Doctor doesn't know what cup of soup is. Well, that Doctor doesn't. He's been fighting a war the entire time. But that's a war ration. <laughs> when you're on the battlefield, you have a super noodles because you're, you're just cowering behind a corpse, waiting for your kettle to boil. Maybe he was like a big boss just killing snakes and frogs and stuff. I think it was like one of those British colonialist generals just having chai tea and fine food while everyone else gets killed on the battlefield like 10 miles that way. He was never on the battlefield. He did it all from an office somewhere. Yeah. What were we saying? Oh, yeah. So because, yeah, the time war is a pre-established thing, you kind of have to work with Gallifrey still needs to look like it's been blown up and all the Daleks need to look like they've been blown up. Well, the Daleks all were. They were blown up. But yeah, I do think that explains how the Emperor survives. Yeah, not thought about the Dalek Emperor. But yeah, he's just probably having chai tea and a nice fancy steak 10 miles away. Yeah. <laughs> so the plan doesn't make a lot of sense because it's like you say, let's duck and then hope all of the Daleks hit another Dalek ship on the other side of them. There's an equal number of Daleks all firing in the same direction, and they'll all kill each other in one shot, apparently. Yeah, and it'll look like a big enough explosion that it could be a planet. Yeah. It's very nice that it's gone like, what's the ultimate victory? And that's undoing the time war. Also, those Daleks aren't going to attack any of the TARDISes that are kicking about at the same time. I know, because there's like 84 of them just zipping about. <laughs> well, there's just 13 of them, isn't there? Yeah. Just attack the first one, though. That's all you need to do. You only need to destroy the first Doctor's TARDIS. Problem solved. Yeah, there's been a bit of retro rewriting, because Stephen Moffat wrote a novelisation of The Day of the Doctor, which we haven't mentioned that's the name of the 50th anniversary special, it's called The Day of the Doctor. I mentioned it earlier. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure I did. It mentioned that it's every Doctor, past and future. So they say all 13, but I think the idea now is supposed to be any future one. But then Matt Smith's like, but I'm the last one. Who's this guy? Well, you're the doctor, I guess. You're never the last one. <laughs> but he thought he was the last one. There's an entire story about it after this. Oh, that's true. At this point in his timeline, he thinks he's the last one. There's a lot of Tarlises flying around. Maybe there's a fan. Maybe it's some cosplayers. <laughs> Maybe it's Clara's one. Yeah, or the master or someone. Just some random diner that's in orbit. Because it should still be a diner, her one. I wonder if there's been a Doctor Who story in expanded media. I mean, not on TV. 
where the doctor mistakes themselves for the master because it's like, oh, this interfering time lord, dramatic time lord showing up. It must be the master. It's just Jodie Whittaker or something. That could be fun. Anyway. You mentioned the novelization. I was reading the wiki. Apparently in the novelization, when Matt Smith has forgotten how many children in that version of it, David Tennant's doctor punches him. It's quite a retro right? But yeah, he knocks him out. I don't think that would have worked. <laughs> it doesn't work. It's not a good rewrite. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what the doctor would do. <laughs> I also love the the doors on that's a, a, another good doctory thing where they put the sconic true vibrator to do a 400 year calculation to like vibrate a door into nothing and it's just not locked <laughs> <laughs> it's just wide open you could have just opened it and left not one of them decided to try the door that was funny everyone's just assumed they're in prison so it's like we can't just push the door <laughs> <laughs> back to that plan pushing aside the absurdity of it i like the lead into it where the other two doctors turn up just before john hart presses the button and they say to themselves, we're not going to try and deny this anymore. We're not going to be ashamed of it anymore. We're going to be here. We're going to be fully cognizant of our decision. We're going to make it together. You won't have to do it alone this time. And then Clara stands there just horrified. I can't believe you're going to commit genocide. Remember, I didn't really like Clara very much. And it did feel at the time, it's a bit like, she's going to stop the time war. What other magical things can she do? Well, it's, it's a note later, she's the one that calms the doctor down when he's a child, makes him not afraid of the thing under his bed or something. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff around her. I didn't really like She's a bit too powerful. She's the one that recommends the TARDIS that he steals, stuff like that. She probably invented the TARDIS. <laughs> <laughs> so at the time I was like, oh, Clara's going to solve the time war. But it is a nice scene, especially when David Tennant does that cute. His doctor takes a bit longer than everyone else to figure out what it is. He's like, oh, 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 I've got it. Yeah, it's kind of like it occurs to John Hurt and then it ripples through the other two as well. Yeah. It's almost like they're remembering him working it out yeah history's changed and he's had an idea and now their doctors are catching up with him having the idea and stuff yeah you have to wonder though if everything's at stake why didn't the doctor think of that in the first place the genocidal weapon is his first choice since the universe is about to end maybe i could just go ask my first incarnation to do a few sums it was probably very tight i think there is some points where you can change history a bit if it's that or genocide <laughs> hey younger me here's a maths book just work on that every once in a while. Yeah, but I suppose the idea is that the War Doctor's been around for a, a very long time. Because in the Night of the Doctor, we don't see him, but you see a reflection in it. It's a young John Hurt. Yeah, de-aging that works on a budget, isn't it? It's a distorted reflection. Yeah, so now he's aged, and obviously Time World's aged incredibly slowly. As you'll see in the next Matt Smith story as well, funnily enough. Yeah, it's also, I think it's supposed to be the retro rewrite region where the Doctor stays 900 until late Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi where he allows himself to be like, actually, I'm way older than that. I'm in my thousands and... 2000 or whatever. Matt Smith says he's lost count. He's yeah. not sure if he's even lying about how old he is anymore. Yeah, I think that's another part of the denial thing. Then Peter Capaldi's like 10 billion or something. I'm older than time. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think this doctor's probably been kicking around for like a thousand years fighting a war. <laughs> and he's like, well, I'm just going to have the blood. <laughs> I'm tired and old. <laughs> I want to sit down. It's one of those things. We accept that the decision was made and it's a horrible thing and that he did it. But I think the crucial thing is he didn't have a companion to keep him right because certainly in the modern era, the companion is the doctor's conscience. Yeah, they keep him in line. I think the most explicit example or the first explicit example I can remember is when Tennant dissociates while he's killing spider babies. Yeah, he's drowning the Rachnos and it's like, you can stop. And Donna's like, it's over, let's get out of here. And she snaps him out of it. And then obviously you see what happens to him if she isn't there. He just dies. Yeah, as far as in the old series ones I've seen, that doesn't 
come up really it's a modern conceit yeah it stops them from being the time lord victorious pretty much which is what could be called if there's no one there to stop them yeah and it's telling that Matt Smith's doctor is the only one with a companion in this story as well. Yeah. John Hart kind of has the moment, but she's not really a companion as such. No. And she's only been there for like five minutes in this guy's life. And David Tennant's flying solo at this point, so he doesn't have that conscience, whereas Matt Smith does. Plus, it makes sense for him to be the one that enables the plot because he's the current doctor. Yeah. The solution has to revolve around him in some way, so therefore it helps that Clara does it. I do understand the hate for Clara. I don't think Mary Sue's a fair term, but there is something about fan servicey about her, the way that she's written early on. There's that manic pixie dream girl type status that she has early on. And obviously her introduction, she's a mystery throughout the entire of her half season up until this point. This was halfway between where she wants to become the Doctor, basically. So yeah, she can click the TARDIS doors open, which David Tennant's Doctor only managed to learn to do after 10 faces. And there's all this sort of stuff, which sort of felt a bit like the companions kind of are level. I mean, it's not that they always have to be in awe of this character, but it doesn't always work if they're both on the same level, because you kind of need that. You need the hand Solo, don't you? You need the sort of person who's just like, he's just there. <laughs> and they're not necessarily the super-powered one, just a normal person that you can find relatable. They can lose that relatability if they're able to fly the TARDIS and making these big brain decisions and stuff. But when you had heard from the second Capaldi season onwards, well, she's only in two Capaldi seasons. She dies, spoilers, in his second one. But the first one, the first one's a mess anyway. I have no idea what Moffat was thinking with that series. But the second one is more examining how unable Clara is to be the Doctor. She takes on the countdown thing that ends up killing her, assuming it will be fine and then it's not. She starts getting punished for her arrogance at one point. And that, that makes it interesting. Yes, at this point, from our knowledge in 2013, he was probably building to that. It's like, well, I want her to eventually try and become the Doctor, and that'll be her downfall thing. But from, we haven't seen the full story yet. At the time, we're like, this is a bit annoying. I think she functions really well in this story, because she does embody the companion role pretty perfectly. She's the conscience. And Matt Smith even says, you know I did this. And she said, yeah, but I never imagined you doing it. I thought you were better. And then she encourages them to be better. And then the doctors work it out after that. When she says, but look at this. You don't want to kill children, do you? And are you sure there's not another way? Maybe if we... Yes, I thought you were a bit better than that kind of thing. And also the doctor's theatrical. Like If they're going to have a big victory and no one's watching, it's kind of pointless. (laughs) If we're going to save Gallifrey, then we really need someone around to watch us make a show of it. It's funny how little Clara's in this story in a lot of ways, even though she was the only one under contract at one point. Yeah, so what you're saying about Peter Capaldi's first series and Matt Smith, Stephen Moffat kind of hated writing it. I mean, it was like three years or so where it's like, nobody wanted to take it from me. And I didn't have any ideas. No one was under contract for this except for Clara. So I was like, <laughs> I've not got any doctors in this doctor special. It's a bit of a nightmare. It's just going to be Clara stuck in the TARDIS, not knowing what to do. She wasn't traveling regular, was she? He was, he was picking her up every other day. That was the fairy tale thing, the idea that the Doctor is this magical figure that appears during the night and takes you to wonderful lands and then sends you home before you have to wake up. Yeah, so yeah, the special could have just been her in London on the bus or something. Teaching English. Teaching English, just a lesson. Quoting poems and stuff. I think there was a version of the story where John Hart was the only Doctor and then you had the Ghosts of Christmas Future type thing with the other two. That could have been fun, but it's good that it's not a gloomy story. It's nice to have a, a bit more fun. And I do love that sequence where they save Gallifrey as well. I think it's 
is very good yeah really kinetic the music and everything it's really exciting i love where the general is like but the calculations would take hundreds of years and it's like oh yeah hundreds and hundreds a thousand hundreds that's it it's combining the fan service bit with the cathartic victory bit which means that yeah you get both and it's the big fun finale bits that's why it works so yeah david tennant's delivery of but i started a really long time ago that's just perfect mic drop delivery it is very good then you get all the stock footage of previous doctors yeah reading the continuity stuff's quite interesting they got an impressionist to do william hartnell's dialogue Yes, because Gallifrey didn't exist. And then apparently if you watch Sylvester McCoy, he changes costumes between shots because they use footage from the movie as well as just his TV series. Fun fact about the Sylvester McCoy era is they dismantled the TARDIS set. So there's very little episodes where he's in it. And when he is in the TARDIS, they tended to be close up. So they didn't need to build too much of the set. So there's not much footage of him in. The, and obviously this is a TARDIS heavy scene because they're all flying TARDISes. So yeah, they have to make use of about the three or four shots they have of him in the TARDIS. So he's got different costumes every single time. Yeah. And then the Christopher Eccleston clip's quite disappointing for my next trick because that's quite well known because it was in the trailer and everything. Yeah, but it was nice that he got a full acknowledgement. A lot of the audience who would only have seen the new series watching this is like, oh, you get to see the other one that you know. The Peter Capaldi cameo was perfect as well. And it's one of those things that works because we as the audience know that Peter Capaldi's coming next. Yeah. So all they need to give you is his eyebrows. So they're not giving you a proper look at the new Doctor yet. Yeah, you just get a very little tease of what you know is coming. Yeah, it was a nice touch. I was wondering if there was going to be an episode of the Capaldi era one where he just has to go off and do this, but it never happens. They never contextualise when this is. Yeah, it does it in his downtime. I mean, it wouldn't be a very... The episode is like, I'm just going to go sort this out back in a minute. Turns out Clara's there twice. Well, she's not on the TARDIS at the time, actually, for some reason. I mean, I guess they don't know if it's going to work. It's like, this could just blow all of us up we're flying into an active battle zone we better leave the human in london fun little detail as well in some shots you can see matt smith's script on the console oh yeah it's just there you can headcanon it as he's taking notes he's doing it longhand he's got the maths on the piece of paper and it's like okay but yeah it's an exciting scene i like the nods back to the banter that they've been having all episode where tenant says equidistance so grown up after being accused of being childish earlier on yeah, because you've had the heavy scene beforehand where they having to make this genocide choice. So then they're going back to, and even John Hurt's joining in, the banter. It's a terrible plan. It won't work. But we're just going to go. It's back to the sort of doctory showmanship. Yeah, or it's when the, the other two doctors do their catchphrases and John Hurt's like, for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> then he has one. It's like, well, Gallifrey stands. <laughs> Fine, I'll say this. But he almost becomes New Era doctor as well when in that previous scene when the idea occurs to him. He becomes very excited yeah he's giggling and laughing but i suppose it's the doctor becoming the doctor again and not being the warrior anymore yeah so it was a great bit of fan service i remember in the cinema people cheered yeah it's a big cheer moment yeah even though it's all stock footage but it works really well it also looks great as well you have the little hologram screens yeah you can design away it oh it's coming in over transmission so you can kind of hide that it's different obviously not hd footage and whatever i often think that doctor who looks a lot better than the money it's given to it should allow because if you look at other american sci-fi shows that have a much higher budget it looks far worse than this in a lot of cases i imagine the budget for this was pretty big but i mean in general i still think it would be low in comparison to an american equivalent of something like this yeah i think say with the jodie whittaker era it always looks amazing but it's weird that it shouldn't look that good. like it, not just that era well sometimes the cgi is pretty ropey but here it even still holds up even though it's 10 years old the war table 
for example, with the holographic display of the battlefield and things like that. It's immaculate. It looks great. When they reveal the painting is 3D, you sort of stand to a side and everything kind of shifts in a very impressive effect and it just looks very cool. It was great. The 3D kicked in in the cinema at that time as well. And you had the earlier shot of Clara riding into the TARDIS on her motorcycle. Yeah. Stuff like that. So they, they made good use of 3D. It's probably the best example of 3D I'd seen in a long time, actually. I suppose also, yeah, because it's in the story. It's all these paintings are 3D. So, yeah, if you go and see it at the cinema in 3D, you get that extra dimension of thing. Whereas if you're watching a Marvel or whatever, it's not in the story. It's just there. They should re-release this every once in a while just so you can watch it in 3D. They probably will if they don't make any movies soon. <laughs> I'll get to go and watch it. What do you look like? They started putting the Capaldi series in cinemas, but nobody went to see it. Nobody went to see it. You can watch Deep Breath in the cinema. No, it's terrible. But also, I'm not paying. Even with an unlimited card, it would have cost me £8. I think it was like £14 if you didn't have one. I was paying that to watch one episode of Doctor Who. Yeah, just the season opener. It's not exactly a big finale or anything. Yeah, and it's crap. The episode wasn't very good. It wasn't very good. And it didn't look very good. It was a really weird dinosaur. Yeah, that episode. Never watch it ever again. The Doctor raking through bins. Oh, yeah. I'd forgotten about that episode entirely first. But great bit of fan service. And I'm torn about the undoing of the Doctor making that choice. They hand wave it slightly by saying none of us will remember this. So the Doctor still thinks that he pushed the button. But at what point does the memory catch up and he's allowed to remember what actually happened? Or does that ever happen? Well, I think the idea is the Doctor doesn't know if they succeeded or not until the curator, who we'll talk about in a second, says, oh no, the title of the painting is Gallifrey Falls No More. And that kind of confirms, yeah, you did it. But the idea is, as soon as they get back in the TARDIS, the memory fades. Well, I think that's for John Hurt and David Tennant. It's not clear, is it? I think the idea is that once you get up to this point in Matt Smith's body, the active doctor who does it, then he'll remember onwards from there, but the ones beforehand won't. So John Hart still thinks he did it, but he doesn't actually remember pressing the button. <laughs> yeah, they just assume they did, yeah. yeah. And that also allows that when you're watching the David Tennant and Chris Jackson ones, they still think they did it because obviously at the time in the story, that's what they had done. And then it's only from the next story onwards from the 50th. I did get the impression that Moffat was trying to leave a blank slate for the next guy. I think that may have yeah, been part of it as well. It's like, well, if you want Gallifrey back. Yeah, you can have Gallifrey back. We'll reset the regeneration count so you don't have to worry about that. Yeah. And what does Chibnall do in his, in his second series? Destroys Gallifrey again. Well, I mean, you're allowed. That's the joy of the free slate. Yeah. <laughs> Rusty Davis destroyed it before he even showed it. No, he has to bring it back again. He has to bring it back again. If he, or he doesn't have to could be destroyed forever <laughs> at least the doctor didn't do it this time unless they did unless they did <laughs> wasn't the master at all the master is just a future incarnation of the doctor but yeah it's the thing of the free we'll resell it you can do whatever you want so yeah you can do whatever you want but it, it was interesting that moffat went back to the time war because that wasn't his thing it was russell t davies thing but i think maybe for the 50th anniversary let's see about the time war we've been talking about it for long enough yeah Stephen moffat loved his arcs and there hasn't been a bigger arc so at this point it'd been going on for eight years it's like let's actually address this one this is our big story we can kind of do this big story that's been the unspoken adventure we can get around to it had he even mentioned it previously in his run Stephen moffat yeah not sure I don't think it came up much with Matt Smith. No. came up constantly during the Davies era. I suppose there was the new Dalek Empire. He put a curb on only one of us survived. Well, yeah, Moffat turned the Daleks into a manageable nuisance rather than end-of-the-universe yeah. type threat, which was 
really tedious by the time Davies finished with that because basically every time the Daleks appeared, they were wiped out forever and then they come back again. But one was okay, yeah. So Moffat just turned them into, yeah, they're out there. People don't like them. They're dangerous, but they're not going to wipe out the universe again. Yeah, they're just being annoyed. Yeah. So this is the last iteration of those super Daleks, I suppose, the most powerful version of the Daleks. Yeah. And they're still in flying saucers shooting at a planet. So what else would they do? Yeah, it works. Until it doesn't. It was an interesting thing for Moffat to return to. I would have loved to have seen a mini-series of the Time War. Maybe you will. (laughs) (laughs) Disney Plus have got it. Yeah, God. They'll do the War Doctor and they'll recast a young John Hart. Yeah. But it's also not very Doctor Who-y. I mean, that's also a problem with Time War, is it's not an optimistic thing, and this is kind of an optimistic show. There's tons of big Finnish stories about it, isn't there? There is, yeah, there's tons of big Finnish. There's a War Doctor thing, there's a War Master thing. So the ones I'm aware of is there's War Doctor, War Master, and I think that general is in a series called The War Room or something, just sending agents out on missions and stuff. But I've not really been that interested in It's more fun as a concept than it is as an explored thing for me. It's one of those things they can be as poetic as they want to be when they talk about it when they never plan to show you any of that. Yeah. Which is fine. I think it worked well as a horrible thing in the Doctor's past. Yeah, it's just this trauma that's going on. Yeah. So do you think it undermines that trauma then since they undo it? Or do you think the fact that the Doctor still thinks he did it is enough up until possibly the Matt Smith present day sort of thing? Well, it's all part of the recovery. It still justifies the feelings of the previous two, or three, if you count John Hurt. But it also allows for a fresh beginning going on. So I think it's a nice way of having the time war in and, say, allowing future writers to deal with it how they want to deal with it and not making it explicit that now the Doctor's like, I'm all fine, I never have to think about it again. Part of the blank slate thing, going like, well, you can still use it, but you don't have to, and it's not a problem anymore. You don't have to worry about it. And then you do Flux later, which is apparently worse than the time war. Somehow. That's the sort of typical Time Lord plot. <laughs> There's one just being awful and just thinking about being, anyway, that's for the Flux retrospective. <laughs> when there's no films coming out in a couple of years. Which we'll never do. Other bits of fan service. The Queen Elizabeth the first story was finally shown, sort of. Kind of a deep cut. When was it it was brought up? Was it the Shakespeare episode? It was in the Shakespeare episode, yeah. And she shows up and yells Doctor and she's clearly not happy with him. Off with his head and it's like, oh, I must have angered her somehow. Yeah. Well, this doesn't really explain how it got to that point. Because she seemed okay with him but when he married her and then left. Yeah, I guess she's just annoyed because he bounced. Just goes to the... <laughs> Yeah, after marrying her. It's like, right, I'm off. Witnesses are two of me and this random girl I don't know. Yeah. So that's kind of a bit of fan service. There's a lot of stuff in the Black Archive, a lot of stuff you can pause, pictures of companions and other things. Apparently there was going to be a a reference to Peter Cushing. I think there was cut for time, but we've been tracking down doctors. They were going to put the film posters or something. Yeah, and it was like, we thought this might be it, but this could just be people retelling the story of one of the Doctor's prior adventures and have made it into a movie or something, which would have been kind of nice, but again, confusing. Yeah, I didn't bother pausing it to see what else was in the Black Archive, but I know there's pictures of old companions on the walls and and stuff like that. Whatever they could nick from Blackpool's Doctor Who Museum. (laughs) There's obviously the mention of Captain Jack giving them the Vortex Manipulator on one of his deaths. Yeah, don't know why he would have done that. Never works anyway, have it. Is this the first appearance of Kate? No. She's in The Power of Three, I think it's called, or Cubed. It's one of the last Amy and Rory ones, yeah, with the little cubes. Oh, right, okay. Is it established then that she's the daughter of the Brigadier? Yes, it's in that one. Right. But this reiterates it if 
You haven't seen yeah, that? Yeah, I'd forgotten it, which is fair, because it wasn't very good. And there's something about ravens needing batteries or something? That's weird. Oh, that's a joke about if all the ravens leave the Tower of London, then the royal family will fall, is the okay. ancient myth. So here it's kind of like, oh yeah, well, they're not real. <laughs> okay, fair enough. That's all the kind of ancillary fan service, I guess. But the big one that you've been alluding to is the appearance of Tom Baker as the curator, who... Well, he doesn't heavily imply, he states that I'm you in the future, basically. He tells the Doctor, maybe one day you'll go back to some old faces, which ends up being accidental foreshadowing for David Tennant's return. Yeah, put a pin in that. <laughs> there was a few things that Moffat set up that someone else would end up doing. He kept mentioning regenerating into a woman. Yeah, they were sort of testing the waters for that. And then he has the general that's in this episode regenerate into a woman later on. Yeah, again... If he was setting the for the next person to take over, he's sort of going like, well, there is this character called the curator, which can look like Colin Baker or Sylvester McCoy if you need him to. Yeah, whichever one you want to use. He can be whoever. He could even be an actor that isn't one of the previous doctors. It could be anyone, yeah. could be you if you want to be in it. <laughs> <laughs> one question I have about the curator is, do you think he's still there? Do you think he's there all the time? I think so. I assume the creator yeah, is properly retired to take over the under gallery. It's just a normal gallery oh, yeah. at that point, isn't it? Even has the marble round things on the wall of the... Has the marble round things, yeah. So potentially the TARDIS is the gallery. Maybe. Which is why it's so easy to get lost in. I thought it was a good cameo because it was nicely enigmatic. Yeah, it lets Tom Baker really milk the milk. Have a great time. He acknowledges he has a big nose. Yeah. Taps his nose. It's only about a minute long, the scene as well. It doesn't overstate its welcome. And this also, he was very reluctant ever to do more Doctor Who stuff again. And this was kind of like, I'll do this. And he's like, oh, I quite like doing this. So in the long run, that kind of led to him coming back for Big Finish. And oh, he's come back since. Yeah, coming back since. And it's because of this, because he got to do it. And it's like, actually, this is quite nice. <laughs> it's nice to do. And he can't do other roles. So he's like, well, I can still be the Doctor for my home and stuff. So yeah, no, it was a very lovely scene. Even though still Matt Smith thinks he's the last Doctor. Even though Tom Baker tells him, you're not. You might. Well, the Doctor's always the eternal optimist. It's like, I know I'm the last one, but I'll probably think of a way of... <laughs> I mean, the Master's been the last one for a while, and they just deal bodies or whatever. It's like, I'll just do that. Just kill someone. <laughs> Take their life energy. I'm ahead by the numbers. Might as well just inhabit someone. If I kill someone, I can save someone, and it'll be fine. But it'll balance. <laughs> Tom Baker still does stuff sometimes, actually. He was in Star Wars. He was in Rebels as a voice. I don't think he does non-voice stuff. Well, at least quite recently, I think he just stays at home and he doesn't go into recording booths or whatever, because I think he's self-isolating and that sort of stuff in his age. I'll record this at home. You get whatever take you get, make use of it. Yeah, I think any acting stuff he does now is voice appearances. And well, that's fair, because he's probably 90, <laughs> so that's fine. He was the narrator on Little Britain as well, but that was before that. That was before that, yeah. But yeah, that's all the roles he does now. It was a nice touch, and it's a good one to do, because if you want to do fan servers by bringing back an old doctor in a role like this, it kind of has to be Tom Baker, because he's the one that people will just know about. Yeah, he's the David Tennant of old Doctor Who. Yeah, it's the osmosis thing, isn't it? The image of Doctor Who for a lot of people before it came back was the hat and the scarf. And they didn't overdo it by making wear a scarf again or anything like that. No, he's just wearing whatever he turned up to the studio. <laughs> yeah, well, you got Osgood with her scarf. Yeah. So. I actually thought they were setting up Osgood's sister to be a future companion in this, because they mentioned your sister's prettier and better than you or whatever. Yeah. I could imagine them doing this callous thing of... Oh yeah, Osgood's sister is just the same actress, but she doesn't wear glasses. And also she's jealous of her sister, and also her sister gets her dream of travelling in the dance. 
Just to be real mean. Yeah. <laughs> and Osgood just gets killed. Yeah. It's like that 90s, oh, this quote-unquote ugly girl is now pretty. We took her glasses off and ran a comb through her hair and put her in flattering clothes, and now she's gorgeous. Oh, like ugly Betty, and it's still like a beautiful woman. <laughs> oh, it's like, well, she's got glasses on. She has a fringe. Yeah, and a frumpy dress sense. Yeah. That's what I thought they were doing, but they didn't do that. In fact, Osgood just... Does she die? I'm not sure. I can't remember. The Zygon one dies, I think. Or they don't say whether the Zygon one or the real one does. Okay. But you never meet her sister. Unless Big Finish have, but that's Big Finish. Yeah, I imagine so. I don't have anything else for fan service. That was all I noticed. That's all the big ones. The opening titles were just the original opening titles. And Clara's teaching in the school that... Oh, Cole Hill, yeah, from the first episode. But yeah, the big bits we've covered. There might be little quotes and little bits, but... They do that in every episode, so it's not special for this one. Oh yeah, there's always references backwards. One other bit in my notes is when David Tennant's about to leave, he does this kind of wink. He raises his eyebrows when pointing his head towards Clara as if to say, yeah, good job. Yeah. A lot of people obviously acknowledge that Jenna Coleman is incredibly attractive. And then the doctors, it's like, yeah, yeah, off you go. Even Matt Smith's doctor was interested in her at one point yeah he gets his i don't want to go again so that's still his last line oh yeah he says that again i've been to trenzalore no, somehow tenant's doctor knows about trenzalore i think they all know don't they that's where the grave is don't go yeah do you think his next doctor's last words will be i don't want to go i'm gonna guess if we're doing guesses that'll be like the reverse one i'm good to go i'm ready to go i'm ready to let shooty cat have a go it's time <laughs> i don't don't want to go <laughs> sick of this face so yeah let's do some speculation that we'll be wrong about in less than a week because there's a trailer due in less than a week there will be surprises we'll be wrong we don't know what's going to happen but we do know we'll be wrong yes we've discussed it before but i think the structure of the 60th anniversary is a bit weird because when you look at the celebration for the 50th i think a 50th is more of a milestone than 60 is in a way because it's half century whereas 60 is just another decade not that it undermines it, it's just, it's less of a milestone in a way. But I'm still a bit confused as to what they're actually doing here. So obviously you're bringing back Tennant and Catherine Tate, the fan favourite pairing, for some stories. Yeah, we're introducing Shooty Gatwa. Yeah, which probably won't happen until the very end for him to go on to Christmas. If we're guessing, I'm going to guess that he'll be in at least the first and last one off, not all three. But I think they'll have a bit more fun because the standard is you know, the last five minutes of a Final Doctor series, the new one will show up and say a lie. But I think this is a chance now where we've got them and we might as well play with that formula a bit and make a bit more use of, oh, there's a future face either, I don't know, fighting to get in or trying to get involved or being hidden. We've already seen Shooty Gatwa wearing Tenant's clothes yeah, I'm going to guess that he'll show up a few times, just simply because it's a good opportunity to do that, <laughs> because usually you don't have that. The standard is that sometimes they haven't cast the new Doctor yet, so they'll film the regeneration and then go like, we'll add in the new person when they take over, <laughs> if they're there. Whereas here, they can kind of have a bit more fun with it, because I think he's filming a Christmas special, so it's not a long wait from the 60th to Christmas. He's filming his second series now, isn't he? Currently it? filming the second series, yeah. So they're getting really ahead of time. It's going to be hilarious if everybody hates the tone of the first one. Oh, crap, we've uh, done two of these. Yeah. So yeah, I think there'll be a bit more shoot to get with than what we usually see of a future Doctor, especially as the general sense that this isn't a standard regeneration, that someone's, well, Neil Patrick Harris probably is interfering it in some way. 
So you reckon that Shutigatwa's doctor is the one that was supposed to be next? I think there's been an interruption, yeah. I think the natural course of regeneration is it's supposed to go straight to Shutigatwa, but Neil Patrick Harris's character, for reasons unclear, is or reasons to speculate about is causing trouble. It could be a bit like with the moment, as in only Tennant's doctor can see him. There's this, the sense that, so in the trailer, Thunder's mum, who is called Jackie, not Jackie, that's Rose's mum, Sylvie, is trying to hide David Tennant, the 14th Doctor, from her. So we know at least that it's not just us and David Tennant that see David Tennant's face. That's the face that Donna and Donna's family are seeing. What I mean was the future Doctor that Shooty got was like a vision that exists in David Tennant's mind. So he's there, but only David Tennant can see him. Oh, I see what you mean, yeah. Like what the moment was in this story. Yeah, that could be an option. He could be aware that you know, it feels wrong. Always being bothered by Shooty Gatwa's Doctor going like, get out. Get out of my body. <laughs> this is my turn. Get lost. You had two goes at this. Let me have a shot. Like when people are trying to get the video game controller off their brother. Get my turn. Go. I'm sick of being player two on this off-brand PlayStation controller. Yeah. So some stuff we've already discussed. There's three stories. Three stories. One is called The Star Beast. One is called Into the Wild Blue Yonder. Or just The Wild Blue Yonder, I think. And one is called The Giggle. And one of them features Beep the Meat, which is some kind of psycho teddy bear or something. One features the 1978 Donald Trump-style character called Beep the Meep, who just looks like a big fluffy rabbit or something, but is actually a sadistic war criminal. And then there's Neil Patrick Harris. The general consensus is that this is a character called a toy maker. Who's like a god or something. Essentially is a god. In a Jodie Whittaker episode called Can You Hear Me? There's a guy who has detachy fingers. He's from the race called the Eternals. And they're just very bored ancient gods who are just playing because they're bored. And like, let's make people scared or let's make people do this because we haven't got anything to do. And the toy maker is one of those. He's just a, or they're just a, an ancient being that's built their own the toys at their dimension and their characters and whatever they want. And they're just having a mess around. And then there's a third story and no one knows what that one's about. No one knows. I've looked through Twitter because I'm not very good at speculation. And the general consensus is that will be the Neil Patrick Harris one, the showdown one. The last one. Okay. Yeah. I imagine he'll maybe be pulling strings in the background. Funny for a toy maker. Probably, yeah. So one of them will be a beep the meat one, then there'll be a middle one. That's probably where they'll put the surprises in. I personally don't think they'll be, they won't be like Matt Smith or anything. That's been rumoured. There was that leaked picture, wasn't there, of Matt Smith filming on set or whatever? Yeah. I think there could be like a Martha or another companion or even a classic companion. Well, they need to fix Martha being married to Mickey, don't they? Yeah, that could have been ended in divorce. <laughs> Poor Martha, she's been engaged or married twice. Also, the original person she was engaged to we went on to play lucifer so just get that guy again because he's obviously more popular who the bbc used for doctor who promo stuff and everyone thought that tom ellis was going to be a doctor oh yeah i think he'd be a good doctor actually yeah he'd be pretty good so yeah i think there's one that will be a sort of cameos one but i don't think it'll be major i think it might be like companions maybe more like the centenary one as well with the quick flashes of could be quick flashes and the edge Whatever they caught, yeah, that place. And then the final will be the big showdown regeneration one. And then Christmas. The Christmas special is definitely happening, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think they filmed it. Shooty Gat was first proper story. Yeah. It'll be a Christmas one. A bit like David Tennant, even though he slept through most of it. And no, not Matt Smith. Yeah, just David Tennant who had the Christmas beginning one. Yeah, so New Doctor at Christmas. Well, David Tennant was hardly in his one, really. He was asleep for most of it. Oh yeah, he's just asleep until the end. That must have been great. First day on the job is 
to just lie down. Just letting everyone else sort it. Then you do a sword fight. Yeah, in terms of speculation, or mostly in terms of things of like what I'd like to see. It's not looking very 60th specially. It's looking no. a bit 2008-ish at the moment. It looks a bit like the three specials type structure, doesn't it? When David Tennant left. Yeah. Instead of a final series, he did his three stories. Well, it was four stories, but you know what I mean. Yeah. So on my wish list slash speculation is that one of them isn't as 2008 as the other ones. And maybe moves away away from Catherine Tate and I'm not sure if Bernard Cribbins filmed anything. He died quite recently. He did. It's going to be his last. Oh, it has filmed. Oh, yeah. There was a set picture of David Tennant wheeling him about in a wheelchair. Okay, no, that's nice. So, yeah, he gets to be in. He's the best one of the nobles. Oh, we have Yasmin Finney as well as Rose Noble, isn't she? Rose Temple Noble. So Donna has a daughter, I guess, that's called Rose. Called Rose. Probably because she met Rose, didn't she, in series four. Yeah. So it'll be a kind of residual hunch or whatever. Well, that doesn't make sense because presumably Yasmin Finney's character chose the name Rose. Yasmin Finney would be too old to be Donna's daughter because it hasn't been like 20 years. 2009, 2023, yeah, she should be 14. Unless she's the daughter of the guy she marries. Maybe he had a daughter in this sort of stepmother situation. Yeah, or they bring the daughter back from the future, I guess. It's a time travel show. Yeah, that's true. Or it could be set 2028 or something. I'm assuming that Yasmin Finney's character will have picked the name Rose, so probably a coincidence. Do you think David Tennant's Doctor will be reminiscent of his 10th Doctor persona, or do you think he'll play a different character entirely? Can't ignore the fact that he looks... Do you think the performance will be a fresh take? What we saw in the trailer is very 10th Doctor-y. Yeah, but he only has a couple of lines in the trailer, so it's difficult to... There'll still be stuff that he'll do that's Doctor-y stuff. Well, there's baseline traits that every Doctor has, more or less, isn't there? Yeah. I don't know. I wonder if David Tennant was attracted back to the role because he would get to do something different. It makes sense. He doesn't look like he did even in this special that we're talking about. He does look older. It's weird to think about it because watching this 50th special, there's no difference between how he looked in 50th special versus how he looked when he was just on the show. Yeah. Now the years are on his face a bit, aren't they? Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, it occurred to me that he might play it differently. It's a shame he doesn't get to be Scottish. That'd be quite nice. Yeah. I know this face, but this voice is different. The only doctor that got to keep their native accent in terms of being Scottish was Capaldi. Yeah, the new ones, yeah. And Matt Smith just talks like that, I think. Yeah, I think all the others talk like that, don't they? Yeah. Did Sylvester McCoy get to keep his Scottish accent? I guess he did. Yeah, he was Scottish. Yeah, it not good to be that he might play it a bit different. I hope he does, because that would be interesting. That'd be a bit more fun, yeah. But also, people will want the Tenth Doctor back. So you can't do it too different, I think. No, I mean, it still has to be the Doctor, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting. It's interesting how little we know about it, which again, we're wrong because we've seen the trailer by the time this comes out and also know a lot more because of other stuff they've told us. I probably should have done, but I haven't watched the trailer again. A trailer came out around Christmas, I think. That one was rubbish though. It was just 20 seconds that told you the titles. Yeah. We got the first one with Beat the Meep and the titles and stuff. But I've not watched that again. So there's probably big things there that I've just forgotten. There's some big green praying mantis monsters i remember but i'm not sure what they are if they're probably from maybe like the middle special or the last they could be a toy maker toy or something yeah i am interested to see what they do with it and i'm interested to see what the disney era of doctor who i guess is what we're gonna call it well maybe the bad wolf era i guess because it's them that's running the show disney are giving money though so i imagine they'll want some kind of creative input they'll want some input i think they'll probably be input on like that's where they can franchise it out a bit and they'll be like well we want to do a animated something or we want to do the the master show or something let's do a bunch of spin-offs that nobody wants to watch yeah they'll probably do that 
Let's do unit, because who cares? Because that's cheap, I guess. <laughs> it's all set on Earth. Bring back Torchwood. Mm. No, I don't want that either. Yeah, yeah, not very good at speculation. <laughs> There's not a lot to go on at this point, though, because we are recording in September, as I said earlier. We haven't even seen the new trailer that's due out in a few days. And listeners may ask, why didn't we wait until this trailer was out before we recorded this? And to answer that, it's just because. Yep. They only announced recently there's going to be another trailer. And it could just be another 10 seconds. It could just be like Doctor Who coming in November 16th or something. Could be nothing. It would just be the air dates of the three specials. Yeah. Coming to cinemas, maybe. Could just be the footage from the trailer we've already seen again. <laughs> just caught in a different audio. But we'll find out. It's kind of an exciting time to be a Doctor Who fan. There's a promise of a regeneration of the show itself away from people not wanting to watch it to perhaps wanting to watch it. I know you like the Shibnall era more than most, but there's no denying that he almost killed the show. It's been on a downward slide. I think also in the Capaldi era it suffered as well. It did, yeah. Well, I think Moffat could be a bit too high concept for a Saturday night audience. I know also it moved from Saturday to Sunday because it had to compete with Strictly Come Dancing. So I think some of the Peter Capaldi episodes were on like 10 past nine when kids can't watch it and it didn't help. Yeah, can you imagine a Saturday night family audience watching a moving story of Peter Capaldi trying to break out of an invincible wall while dealing with his grief. Or everyone who died has been turned into a monster and they're breaking out their graves and stuff. <laughs> it's a bit grim. Well, I wonder if that's one of the things that they'll try and do with this revival of it, though. Because Russell T. Davies was brought on because the BBC wanted Doctor Who to compete with the big guns in terms of sci-fi and fantasy. They want it to be a franchise that people care about again. When it was at its height in the David Tennant era where you had two spin-offs and stuff, it was worldwide acclaim. Everyone loved it. Yeah, so probably go back to being more like that. Yeah, but the landscape was very different back then. Star Trek had been cancelled and all this stuff, whereas now you've got Star Trek, you've got Star Wars, you've got Game of Thrones. But also now you have streaming as well, so it doesn't have to be just what's on TV. You can watch anything whenever you want. Yeah, so it's franchises everywhere you look and one thing I'm wondering about, because they've talked about the Saturday night slot coming back, which I'd rather not. I prefer Sunday. There's nothing on a Sunday. I prefer Sunday. Christmas Day. I don't want it on Christmas Day. I'd rather have New Year's Day. I like New Year's because New Year's Day is the boringest day ever. So must have something to do. Especially if I want to review it as well. I'm doing a review on Christmas night. It's nonsense. It's rubbish. It's rubbish. Because I might not get screeners. Maybe I will. Who knows? I'm on the mailing list. I'll beg for screeners. Or beg Disney for screeners, perhaps. But I know Disney are rolling out primetime airing for their streaming shows at the moment as well. They're talking about they're putting Loki on at like 9pm on a Tuesday. Yeah. Which will have been and gone by the time this comes out, probably, or it will still be on, certainly. But it's the idea of we're going to turn our streaming shows into appointment viewing by advertising our release time. Crazy. Will they maybe do the same with Doctor Who? I mean, it's still going to be, as far as I'm aware, broadcast... On BBC One, it'll probably be, what's the word, dual stream. It'll be available once, 6pm on Sunday or whatever, when the episode comes out on BBC. Or the movie simulcast it. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> you can just watch it on Disney Plus or BBC One if you want. Well, I don't know if the BBC would want that. They would probably want the first run so that people watch it there. Maybe, yeah. Or at least it'll be simulcast on iPlayer. <laughs> well, outside of the UK, it'll be like, oh, and you can watch it in America at this time on this day or whatever at the same time as being broadcast in the UK. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Taps knows. Taps knows. So yeah, we have no speculation. So we can't really be wrong then. Maybe we can. There is some speculation that we can be wrong about. If it's not aired, then we're wrong. Yeah. Unless we're very right. Imagine that. Could happen. We might be really disappointed. We'll find out. And we'll probably talk about it. Yeah. We'll 
keep you updated on various news podcasts. Isaac is dropping in and out through the time stream to appear on news podcasts whenever Doctor Who news appears. Yeah, that's my thing. Yeah, that's his thing. And we'll have a trailer soon at time of recording when we'll be doing that again. Yeah, which may or may not be worth talking about. We'll see. Hopefully it is. Hopefully. Because yeah, we haven't got nothing at the moment. So. No. <laughs> So any final thoughts on the 50th special then before we wrap up? It's really fun. It's definitely, say you haven't been caught up, say you, you stopped watching midway through David Tennant and you missed a lot of the Matt Smith stuff. Stop watching midway through Matt Smith. Although I did catch up with all of the episodes. But you don't have to, there's no homework for this. You can kind of just jump in and it's fun. As long as you're vaguely aware of the concept, you'll be fine. Yeah, I think everything is explained enough also don't start watching the show here because it's not a jumping on point but you can just go in it's just a nice watch it's not impenetrable yeah yeah it's a fun adventure just good it's nice to revisit it's a breezy watch yeah just a nice bit of fun yeah i liked it like i said earlier i think it was a good celebration of doctor who it was a worthy celebration of it yeah. unlike star trek where paramount just did nothing absolutely nothing 50 years of star trek and what did we get nothing a photograph and a film that was it and what did doctor who get a full no holds barred flag waving celebration of its own existence and it was perfect for that yeah it was really good it was a great time a bit not too fan yeah it was and uh, seeing it in the cinema that was a good experience it'd be nice if they could just air it every once in a while in the cinema just to let's see it in 3d again yeah it's really fun So that was our conversation about Day of the Doctor, the 50th anniversary celebration of Doctor Who. I want to thank TARDIS71 for the supplied music. And if you like what you heard, please do subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get podcasts, really. And most of those platforms now have a rating and review system built in. Usually they go in the form of stars. So Isaac, how many stars should people give us? As many stars as there are in the sky, but if you don't want to count just sort of do a rough guess of like five 2.7 billion that's yeah. how we want collectively five and 2.7 billion if everybody gives us five stars then we might get 2.7 billion stars in total that's also true about everybody gives us one star but it's faster and easier just to do five stars it'll happen faster with five stars yeah. exactly if you want to discuss doctor who or anything else really you can hit us up on facebook or twitter or x under Neil Before Blog. We're also on Blue Sky. It's an invite-only type place, but if you're on there, we're on there. Hit us up on there as well. And we have, well, it wouldn't be so new by the time this comes out, but it's new for us at this point in our timelines. Isaac, do you want to tell the listeners where else they can find us? So they can find us on Discord. There's a Neil Before Pod Discord. We're all active on there, and you can chat about just whatever, really. There's pages for what you've seen on TV, films, ask anything. It's quite an active place. It's really fun. Everyone's pretty lively on there. Not saying anything profound, but saying stuff and yeah it's lovely come and hang out we have a small yet engaged community yeah that's also an invite situation so i think to find the invite will probably be listed in the show notes the invite link is in the show notes if you go down to the bottom where it says join us on discord click there it will take you to the server and you will be brought in and then i will grant you access yeah so i hope to see you all there join us there and as always we hope you'll join us next time on new before hot bye-bye everyone